0: Our text for today, uh, Mark chapter 3, and we will pick up in verse 20. Uh, We left off last week in verse 19. Verse 20, uh, then he, and this is of course Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered around again so that he could not even eat. That's the problem. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is his family talking, by the way. 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and spake, said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So, in this text, Jesus is labeled cray-cray by his own family, Beelzebul and minions, right, his minions, tying up a strong man in his own house, an unforgivable sin, redefining family, like welcome to the first message in our brand new space, right? This is why we preach systematically through the Scripture, probably not the one I would have selected if we did not do that. Um, In this passage that we read today, Mark uses what most scholars believe what they would call a kind of a bracketing or a sandwiching technique. Uh, and we talking about sandwiching. We're not talking about like a tomato sandwich, or I'm in. I know where I'm at. I Need to call it a mater sandwich, right? Um, or a BLT. We're not ta- even though if we're we're talking about those type of sandwiches, BLT would have to be right up at the top of the list, right? Um, so we're not talking about a ham sandwich or PB and J. Um sandwiching is the idea that Mark will begin one story, and here the family, and then he will bring another story into the middle of the story, and then he'll conclude the story. So we have the first story. So we have kind of this sandwiching, right? Family, scribes, family. See, kind of the sandwich idea there. That he starts an incident. And then closes with that incident, and then bracketing in between, there's kind of this other ep, there's other episode. But both of them emphasize the same point, which is, in this text, an inadequate response to who Jesus is. An inadequate response to who Jesus is. So look back at the first scene. This is the introduction of Jesus' family, kind of part one of our series here. Back to, again, verse 20. He went home. And again, this is Jesus has been traveling when they we see the word home in Mark's text that usually indicates probably Peter's house. That was the first place that was referred to as home in the text. Then he went home and the crowd gathered around again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. So they were saying he is out of his mind. So if you were here last week, Jesus selected 12 disciples. And now he returns back to probably what is Peter's home where he's residing in that area. And again, he's overcrowded by the multitudes to the point that he is not even able to eat. Now I can tell you in the Hudson house, this would be an issue. anything is going on to the point that we could not eat, that would be a problem. But Jesus is crowded to the point that he can't even eat. Again, as we have seen throughout Mark's Gospel, the crowd is an obstacle to the ministry of Jesus. The many, the crowd, stands as an obstacle to the ministry of Jesus. Like our culture kind of has us backwards, don't we? We tend to emphasize crowds. We tend to emphasize success based on crowds. It doesn't matter if it is a church or some type of sporting event. I mean, again, I had the opportunity to go to the national championship game um, last Monday night to pull for my team that lost, but there were 70,000 people. In this arena. And it will hold more than that. It's like empty seats. I mean, that's a crowd, right? Success is determined by crowds. But we see in the Gospels that Jesus de emphasizes crowds and really kind of focuses it on the few. We saw that last week with the disciples that he selects the few. And that the crowd, all throughout Mark's Gospel, stands as an obstacle to the ministry of Jesus. And then we have this shocking response from his own family. They come in to seize him, take charge of him. The word actually is. This forceful language to seize someone by force because they literally believe Jesus is out of his mind. And so they're gonna have an intervention. Remember that old show that used to come on? A and E. I don't know if it still does. Intervention. We're gonna intervene in someone's life. We're gonna step in to their life and intervene. And so the family feels like they need to forcefully step into the life of Jesus and intervene because obviously he's out of his mind. Claiming to be the Messiah claiming to heal people, all these things. So remember, like at this point in his ministry, Jesus' own family doesn't really comprehend what's going on. They will, in just a short window of time, Mary will be at the very cross of Jesus. Jesus will address Mary from the cross. We know that one of Jesus' brothers wrote one of the New Testament books, the book of James. James was the physical, biological brother of Jesus have often said, like, if you can convince your own brother that you're the son of God, like, that's a win, right? And so the family will understand who Jesus is later, but at this point in his ministry, they stand in opposition to who Jesus is. His family aligns themselves with those who are opposing the ministry of Jesus, which is what makes his words at the end so important. Scene 2. It's in this second episode, beginning of verse 22, and the scribes, these would have been religious, um, kind of the smart people, uh, the people that would take all the notes and write things down and, and break down the Old Testament teachings. The scribes, they came down from Jerusalem, so there seems to be like this delegation that sent, and they were saying, here's their story, he's possessed by Beelzebul and the prince of demons, he cast out demons and he calls them to the side says to them in parables how can satan cast out satan if a kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand if a house is divided against itself that house will not be able to stand if satan has risen up against himself and is divided he cannot stand but is coming to an end but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his So this episode, Jesus and the Scribes, the teachers of the law, the accusation is Jesus is possessed by Satan and cast out demons by this evil power. Notice they do not deny the power of Jesus to perform miracles. They've watched that happen. They do not accuse him of being a fraud. They accuse him of being allies with Satan. I love how Jesus responds. He uses this very kind of common sense parable that just makes their argument completely illogical. Jesus basically says, why would miracles that are diametrically opposed to Satan be empowered by Satan? Does it make any sense for Satan to empower an assault against himself? Like, Let's break it down so we can understand it. We'll use a sports analogy here, right? This is the equivalent of providing your opponent your playbook, your game plan. Hey, we're playing in the the biggest, you know, football game of the year. Rivals are playing each other. Let's take our playbook and let's just send it over to the opposition. Let's tell them exactly what play we're going to run every single time. The first two plays are going to be a run to the right side, third plays, Going to be a pass to the left side. Here's exactly how this we're going to play this thing out. I know what some of you Alabama fans were thinking. We could provide them the playbook and still win. It would make no sense. That's the only time I can get some of these guys to amen. Jesus is king. Silence. Alabama would win regardless. Amen, brother. Keep those doors red. Um, So, turning over the playbook to the opposition, right? Jesus does not fulfill his mission by joining forces with Satan. Jesus invades the residence of Satan, the house of Satan. He conquers him, and he plunders his possessions. Satan is the strong man in the parable, in the analogy. He is no match for Jesus. I love this picture that Jesus just walks up in his house and binds him. The arrival of God's kingdom on earth through Jesus represents this turning point in the redemptive story, this battle between good and evil. By the way, let me throw this in. The binding of the strong man is not still to come. The binding of the strong man has happened. It happened at the cross. It happened in the resurrection. The power of Satan was removed through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And I say this often at City Church. Like, if we're living in defeat from the enemy, we're, I mean, if we're yielding to that, we're living in defeat of a, a foe that's been conquered. He's already been conquered. It's not up in the air how this thing turns out. Jesus has already conquered the foe. He is already defeated the spiritual battle of good versus evil god versus satan it's not a civil war it is a direct nuclear onslaught against the kingdom of darkness satan is a conquered foe and in this parable jesus is the more powerful one who by the power of god's spirit enters into the home of the strong man he binds him and then he routs his minions it is no contest Jesus is the victor. And then Jesus gives us a sobering warning. It causes us to kind of scratch our heads, right? What's going on? Verse 28. Truly I say to you. Anytime we see that phrase, it's like a point of emphasis, like drilling down to the truth. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. By the way, awesome statement of grace at the beginning of this. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I mean, what a sobering warning. Uh, Jesus speaks here of an unpardonable, unforgivable sin that has eternal consequences. If you grew up in the type of churches I grew up in, like you ever found yourself... Late at night, after you've heard this text read or heard this text, like you're wringing your hands at night wondering, have I ever committed the unforgivable sin? (laughs) Anybody ever been there? I'm the only one, okay. Um, (laughs) You hear these texts and you're like, man, what is that all about? Have I done it? Have I crossed the line? Have I, you know, approached the the unforgivable sin? By the way, if you're asking that question, that means the answer is no. But this idea, like what is Jesus talking about? There's several ideas on what Jesus is talking about here. You can read a lot of opinions from a lot of New Testament scholars and people who are much um, smarter than I am. What seems to be apparent in this immediate context where Jesus issues this warning is that Jesus is warning against attributing, contributing the work of the Holy Spirit that happens through Jesus to Satan. Um, The word blaspheming here is the idea of slandering or defaming defaming the work of the Holy Spirit by contributing God's work to Satan, to forces of evil. Remember the context here. They're accusing Jesus of having an evil or a demonic spirit. Now, if we were to flash back to the beginning of the Mark series, when John the baptizer came on the scene, right, and he was preparing the way for Jesus, remember what John's message was at the very beginning. I don't think I have this up on the slides, but let me just mention it. John preached, saying, After me comes, one, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that John said, look, Jesus is coming, empowered and baptizing by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is more powerful, powerful and he will arrive and he will baptize with and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And now this group of scribes is accusing Jesus of being empowered instead by the kingdom of darkness. So to witness the work of God that Jesus has been doing, and then to attribute that work to evil, is in some way to defame the work of the Holy Spirit. And the warning that Jesus gives here is that to continue in this direction has eternal consequences. Isaiah the prophet employs very similar language. When his prophet, prophecy, he warns God's people against failing to distinguish evil from good and good from evil, darkness from light and light from darkness. Paul picks up on this theme in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, Paul warns of God giving people over. He uses this language of giving them over to a reprobate mind because they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They have worshipped and served creatures instead of the Creator. And don't forget, sobering. Jesus issues this warning to religious people, scribes, who have failed to recognize Jesus for who he is and failed to believe in him. Instead, they have misidentified Jesus as a worker of evil, They have hardened their hearts and turned against him in unbelief. And con- to continue in this direction, Jesus says, has eternal consequences. Now I want you to hear me clearly in these next few minutes. One thing I never want us to miss in this discussion of the unforgivable or unpardonable sin is that Jesus is not trying to make us afraid of whether we may or may not have committed this sin. He's not trying to keep you up at night wondering and worrying and wringing your hands about whether you've committed some type of unforgivable sin. We cannot miss, and we tend to, we cannot miss the very first words of Jesus in this statement. The very first words of Jesus is that he reassures us all sins can be forgiven Even, he says, those who utter blasphemy. What he warns against is this persistent, unrepentant resistance against the work of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's message concerning who Jesus is. Jesus is warning against unbelief, the hardening of our hearts against the work of the Spirit. And Jesus says those who continue in this attitude of persistent rebellion, they are outside of God's redemption. They are outside of God's forgiveness which is why he reinforces with his words what it means to be a part of his family. Yet, listen, so important, built into the words of Jesus here, as puzzling as these words are, built into his words is an invitation to the scribes to turn from their unbelief and sin And to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Built into his words about an unforgivable sin is this invitation. Turn to me and believe. Don't continue down the path of disbelief. Turn to me and believe. And it is the same call that we extend today. Turn to Jesus. Believe in who he is. Live under his rule and reign. All sins are forgivable for those who repent and believe and turned to Jesus. Let's go this third scene. Scribes, Pharisees, back to family, the last part of our sandwich, if we're using that analogy, verse 31. So again, very important what Jesus just had to say. How he turns now to this idea of family. This mother and his brothers came standing outside. Just interesting perspective there. Mother and brothers on the outside. They're the outsiders in our text. Standing outside, they sent to him and called him. This word called is a familiar word to us if you've been with us through Mark's gospel. That Jesus has been calling disciples, right? That he's been initiating, calling, and they come to him. Here's the family on the outside calling to Jesus, trying to make Jesus come to them. They called to him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you and he answered them who are my mother and my brothers and looking about those who sat around him he said here are my mother and my brothers <coughs> For whoever does the will of god he is my brother and sister and mother so like we read this we're like what's up with jesus dissing on his family right was he being rude to his family what's going on well mark takes us back to again the family of jesus And he portrays the family as outsiders who are summoning Jesus to come out to them. They send word into this crowded house for Jesus to come out. And this word implies, the original word implies that they have some type of control, right? They're trying to gain control over Jesus. His family assumes that they have the authoritative right um, to, to call Jesus to come home. I'm thinking if the mom's involved and she knows Jesus can't eat, right? He's so crowded he's not been able to eat. Mary's like, get my boy out of here. I'm going to take him home and feed him, right? I'm going to imagine that's kind of what's going on here. He's out of his mind. He just needs to spend some time with the family. Let's get a good meal in his belly. He's probably just dehydrated. They're calling, summoning Jesus out. But Jesus does not share their assumption that they have some type of authority over him. As a matter of fact, he says, like, who are my mother and my brothers? He redefines family not in terms of bloodline, but in terms of being a part of his kingdom, living under his rule and reign. So important. Those who assume they are close to Jesus, based on any measure other than a call to repent and believe are called to reconsider their part in God's family. Those who assume they are outside of God's forgiveness are invited to reconsider who Jesus came for, that he came for sinners, those who need forgiveness. So let's talk about what it looks like to be part of the family of God. Because here Jesus defines family in terms of the spiritual connectedness this allegiance to Jesus as our king. He's not dismissing the importance of a biological family. He's prioritizing the spiritual family. You see, this section really kind of brings us back to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That those who are with Jesus and do the will of God are part of God's family. Those who refuse the call of Jesus for their own agenda, their own way of living, they are outside the family. And so there is an implied warning here both to those who believe they are a part of God's family simply because they've been around Jesus, they've been around Jesus' stuff, they've been around Jesus' people, there's a warning to them. And for those who consider themselves religious but misunderstand who Jesus is. Jesus is not your one-up, right? He's not the, I live a good moral life. I'm going to make it to heaven based on this, and then I kind of bring Jesus in at the end to help me get over the edge. He's not your buddy to try to help you get there in the end. I just need him at the finish line to help me over. Jesus demands absolute surrender and allegiance. He defines being a part of the family by this. He clarifies who is a part of the family, those who belong to him and are truly with him his family is not determined listen by birth his family's not determined by your family connection my parents grew up methodist my parents grew up presbyterian my parents grew up southern baptist your family connection has nothing to do whether you are a part of god's family it's not determined by my church affiliation i mean i get it we live in the bible belt everybody's affiliated with something right I grew up this, or I grew up that, or my membership is down here. He's not identifying it by church affiliation. He's not identifying it by religious knowledge, how much you know the stories. He's not identifying it by approval from religious groups, by spiritual training. I've been through enough classes, right? He's not determining it by your moral behavior. I do these things and I do not do these things. I must be okay. That has nothing to do with what it means to be a part of God's family. The family of God are those who follow Christ, not in this kind of cheapened idea of following that we have today, right? Like I have this many people that follow me on social media, or I have this many people that follow me doing this. We're not talking about that type of following. We're talking about following in the sense that I am turning from my own way of living And I am surrendering to his rule, his reign in my life. Repent and believe. We've said it week after week after week. That Jesus invites us into his kingdom. And the way that he invites us into his kingdom is he says, you turn from you and you turn to me. That's what it means to be a part of the family of God. And as we have witnessed in Mark again and again and again, I love this. We see it in this room today. The family of God is this eclectic group of people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, all ethnicities, all nationalities, all socioeconomic standings, all kinds of histories, all kinds of biological families, all kinds of trades working in this room, right? All these things, all types of ages, all types of people that grew up in church, did not grow up in church, know a lot about the Bible, know very little about the Bible, all types of people, people that speak all types of languages, right? People that look very different from each other, people of all sizes and shapes and forms. That's what it means to be a part of the family of God. We are this eclectic group of followers of Jesus, and we have one thing in common, one thing in common, and it's Jesus. He's what we have in common. It's the gospel. The gospel is what holds us together, that we believe Jesus lived and died and was raised back to life for my rescue. And that is good news for us. I heard you back there. (laughs) So when the Sledge sisters sing, we are family, we sing it different. We are family, all my brothers, sisters, and me. And like all families, don't miss this, our family gets complicated. It gets ugly. It gets annoying at times. We fight and we argue and we get angry because we're still broken people and we still tend to elevate our own agenda over His. But we are people who are called to love God and love each other, and love our neighbors. And that's what being families is all about, that we are following Jesus together. So here's what that means, City Church. We're going to pray together, and laugh together, and cry together, and support, and encourage, and correct. And we're going to drag each other through stuff, and we're going to pull each other along, and we're going to push each other along. And in the meantime, through all of that, we're going to point each other to Jesus. We're going to point each other to Jesus. Because he's the one. He's the one who holds us. He's the one who calls us. He's the one that holds us together. That's what family does. We hold on to each other. We live in a day and age where there's a lot of people who have been hurt and wounded by the family, right? A lot of people are out of church and don't really want to show up at church because the family hurt them. And I'll tell you, if we point them to the family, it's going to happen. Because the family hurts and it wounds. But when we point them to Jesus, we put their hope in Jesus and their faith in Jesus, and we can walk this thing together. I love the fact that, that we, we read about it last week, that Judas the betrayer, that there was one of the 12 that betrayed and walked away. And guess what the other 11 did? They walked, you know, for a moment's time across. cross. they, They were sketchy too, right? But in the end, those 11, they held on to each other. One of them walked. One of them defected. One of them betrayed. But the other ones were family. And they stuck together through the ups and downs, belief, unbelief, all the doubts and insecurities. They stuck together. And because they stuck together, holding on to Jesus, we're sitting in this room today. End with this. As far as questioning, all these questions surrounding the unpardonable sin, I want, to, I want you to remember this. Remember, God is far more gracious, far more loving, far more forgiving, far more merciful than you can even begin to imagine. And he is eager to forgive. He is eager to redeem. He is eager to restore. His default button is forgiveness. Don't forget Jesus makes this staggering statement of grace and forgiveness before he even touches the unforgivable sin. He says people can be forgiven of all their sin, even slander itself, he says, can be forgiven. No one who desires forgiveness is unforgivable. Even this dire warning in this context is issued so that the scribes might reconsider and turn to Jesus. Isaiah says, seek him while he may be found. He is eager to forgive. You are invited to be a part of the family of God. A group of broken people, redeemed and rescued and reconciled by an unbroken Savior. No family is perfect, including this family of faith, and that's what makes it beautiful. We are imperfect people. So if you are imperfect today, welcome. Run to Jesus, because He is the perfect one, and He is enough for you. Let's bow our heads